Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very grateful to Mr. Ballinger for the invitation to speak again, as I did last year and two years ago, before this, this distinguished and interesting gathering of librarians, bibliophiles, and other scholars from different parts of this country and of the world. You hear me also in the back, or should I raise my voice? Uh, I must ask those of you who heard me last year to forgive me if I repeat some of the points I made before. I hope they will believe me when I say the problems of manuscript research, the methods of dealing with them have not drastically changed since, <laughs> since last year. I shall try to treat, treat my subject this time with a different emphasis and focus and to illustrate it with different examples. The project, which I have been occupied for many decades, a summary list of uncatalogued or inadequately catalogued Renaissance manuscripts in Italian and other libraries, briefly called Iter Italicum, has made some progress since last year. The index to volume three is ready to appear. Volume four is in page proofs, although not all of it yet. And the typescript for volume five is being revised and will, I hope, be ready in a few months. The task of manuscript research, which this project is intended to serve, consists in locating, identifying, describing, studying, and sometimes editing the manuscripts which contain certain texts that is, in this case, philosophical, scientific, scholarly, and literary texts from the period between 1300 and 1600, written for the most part in Italy and in Latin. This is a large and imperfectly explored, explored body of writings. Some of it has been known through modern editions of varying merit, but much more of it is found only in early editions printed between 1450 and 1600, and still more is found in contemporary manuscripts. Manuscripts which concern us here are not documents or papers preserved in archives, which are the primary sources for the political, economic, or social historian, but manuscript books preserved in libraries and copied in order to be kept, read, and referred to in libraries. The manuscript, like the printed book, must be considered as a kind of publication though on a more limited scale. It was the only form of publication available before 1450, the approximate date for the invention of printing. But even after that date, the manuscript book continued to survive, especially for an author's fair copies, for dedication copies, and up to our own day for course books and lecture notes. All scholars concerned with cultural or intellectual history or with the history of any branch of learning or literature, must rely on literary texts as their primary sources. And they greatly enlarge the scope and substance of their work if they include among their sources not only modern printed texts, but also early editions and manuscripts. If you want to find any manuscripts which contain authors or writings which we wish to study or to edit, we must follow the procedure which I tried to describe last year. We must start from the recent and not so recent editions of our texts, if there are any, and from the scholarly literature dealing with them, 
to be sure. But then we must begin to check the indexes of printed catalogs of manuscripts, which are available in many large libraries. Our Columbia Library is especially rich in such catalogs. And then we must proceed to the unpublished indexes found in each library for its own collections, either by visiting the respective libraries in person or by sending out a circular letter to the more important libraries. If we are concerned with only one author or writing, this method is on the whole sufficient. However, if we are concerned with a broader topic, such as an entire branch of literature or of learning, a more laborious method is necessary. That is, we must try to scan or to read all available catalogs or inventories from beginning to end. In this way, we shall find additional copies of the texts for which we are looking, especially in anonymous or in miscellaneous manuscripts. But we shall also come upon a lot of interesting related writings of whose existence we had been unaware and for which we consequently could not even have looked when we were from the indexes. Finally, we must actually examine the manuscripts which concern us, first on microfilm and preferably also on spot. Each of these steps has become a good deal easier in recent decades than at the time when I began my investigations. We have far greater facilities for traveling and it is much easier to obtain good microfilms of photostats at a reasonable price from all parts of the world. There are some exceptions, I'm sorry to add. <laughs> and can study them in our own home or library. The number of good printed catalogs is increasing every year. The bibliography of both printed catalogs and unpublished inventories, which I published last in 1965, is being updated by two German scholars. And the new catalogs are being collected, along with the older ones, in a number of major libraries, including Columbia. Professor Edward Kranz has put together a microfilm corpus of the printed indexes of manuscript catalogs, which is available in many places and turns out to be extremely useful to manuscript scholars, as I have learned from many of them. Kranz has also begun to prepare indexes of unindexed printed catalogs, and he is about to complete a project started decades ago by Professor Ullman that is to collect in the Library of Congress microfilms of the unpublished inventories and indexes of those libraries that have no printed catalogs or no complete printed catalogs. The Ambrosiana in Milan, the Marciana in Venice have published facsimile editions of their previously unpublished inventories and thus made them generally acceptable. I remember the time when the Ambrosiana inventory was not kept in the reading room but in the stacks. A scholar had to ask for it and he could ask for it only when he knew of its existence. And it took me years before I learned of its existence through some local friends. <laughs> I'm happy to say in time to be used for the first volume of my eater. And I'm now working on the facsimile edition and cross-checking my notes. And I'm sorry or happy to say it enables me to correct some errors to add some items which I had overlooked before because to work at leisure, at home, surrounded by other books uh, is much more efficient than working in a hurry 
in a strange place where you spend only a few days at a time. These resources will certainly make it easier for a scholar to gather much of the needed preliminary information. At home, without depending on extensive correspondence or traveling, traveling has become more difficult for me with age, I cannot complain that my correspondence has greatly diminished in recent years. He still must travel, but he can now use his limited time abroad for the more advanced stages of his work such as describing and collating a manuscript. We also have ex extensive microfilm collections, which often make a recourse to the original source unnecessary. St. Louis University for the Vatican Library, University of Notre Dame for the Ambrosiana, St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota for Austrian and other monastic collections. In spite of this progress, we are still far removed from the goal which we should have in mind. A complete database, I'm getting modern, a complete database for all accident or well-attested manuscripts in our field that would enable us to find all manuscripts of a given author or text and to treat the sum total of all manuscript collections as a kind of bibliothèque imaginaire. I like I like this word adapted from uh, a famous French author's uh, Musée Imaginaire. Many enthusiasts uh, like to believe and to make us believe that we are close to this stage, but they forget that you cannot computerize any data before they have been carefully collected, verified, and identified. I was asked years ago whether my eater couldn't have been done by a computer. I said, yes, if you find a computer that is capable of traveling, of reading inventories, of selecting from the inter-inventories the items that are of interest for our project and of describing them. This, of course, our far advanced technique has not yet arrived at this <laughs> stage. I hope it will someday arrive at it. Also, those people who tell us that all we need is a computer in order to make our bibliography. This is true for all those colleagues, and I'm afraid there are many of them, who need only the titles in order to be listed in a bibliography. If you want to know also what is the content of an article, and even the content of an article that goes beyond the abstract supplied, then you have to look at the box. And the computer alone, the title from the computer, will not be sufficient. I'm saying something very unpopular, but I am un I'm misusing the, uh, the uh, credit I seem to enjoy with this audience. <laughs> Let us now indicate some of the obstacles which we encounter at each phase of our work. I'm sorry to say, up to now I have been optimistic. Now, the second and longer part will be less optimistic, largely due because I'm supposed to talk about problems. And problems are interesting only as long as we have not yet completely solved them. Let us now indicate some of the obstacles which we encounter at each phase of our work. First of all, it is not easy to put together a complete list of all those depositories which contain manuscripts of the type that interests us. It is true 
that we are reasonably well informed about most major or middle-sized institutional collections and their holdings. However, not all of them are completely or adequately catalogued or inventorized. The rediscovery of two misshelved manuscripts of Leonardo da Vinci at the National Library in Madrid made headlines for several months and produced a lot of misinformation in the papers. But nobody seemed to understand that this was only one sensational instance of a widespread problem involving many if not most other libraries, or to understand that the proper cataloging of manuscript collections was an important but slow and laborious task which requires a knowledge and skill that is not widely found or appreciated. I wonder whether the same papers who loudly proclaimed that it was a world scandal that the Leonardo manuscripts had not been located for 100 years would raise write even one word in support of a project that would assign the necessary funds and the necessary training for the cataloging of the collections involved. I doubt that very much. Many of the major libraries have, in addition to their main manuscript collection, a number of smaller separate collections. The Italians call them properly fondi minori that are easily overlooked. Uh, I, um, I, it took me decades to ac get acquainted with some small collections within the Vatican or within the National Library in Florence where I had been almost at home for several decades until a librarian would pull out of the desk a, a volume, a handwritten volume, and say, here we have this collection. It might contain some manuscripts that interest you. I've never heard about it. Well, it contained one manuscript of Ficino and one of Poliziano. Of no, no, nobody had ever heard of them. The University of Heidelberg Library, which I also know reasonably well, turned up a special collection recently, and it took me some correspondence, and the librarian was nice enough to send me a Xerox copy of their inventory. Well, I don't know whether Ms. Delamere is here, but it, it contained a manus signed manuscript by one of the major Italian copyists of the 15th century on whom she has worked hard for, and successfully for a number of years. Uh, the major collections also keep acquiring new manuscripts, and it is practically impossible to keep track of them unless you go back to them every year, which I'm not able to do. Maybe I should revisit every year all the libraries I know to find what manuscripts they have acquired. Uh, a lot accumulates. It is, sometimes libraries change their addresses, or even... <laughs> or even their names. <laughs> and when you use an old reference to a given manuscript, you are not sure to find it now. One of the most insidious changes that often occur in manuscript collections is the change of their shelf marks. It is often done to hide losses. <laughs> and it may in turn cause losses. I wrote years ago in a preface that the change of self-mark systems in the library is usually the effect or the cause of losses. 
If there is a concordance between old and new marks, shelf marks, the manuscript, this is a venial sin. The manuscript can be found on the basis of an older shelf mark though through the concordance, though it should be cited by its current shelf mark. Now, one library, a small, middle-sized library in Italy that I know recently well, I learned through an, a recent publication, they had changed their shelf mark system. So I had to send to the librarian a sheet uh, with a list of all the manuscripts that I knew, asking him to write on the modern, the present shelf mark system. Well, he did it, and it came back last week and has not yet properly digested. There are many such The manuscript, um, when, they, uh, when a shelf mark is changed without keeping a concordance, the manuscript is practically lost unless or until a laborious search succeeds in relocating it. I had uh, serious experiences of this kind. Probably the uh, most drastic case was the Palace Library in Madrid where they had changed their shelf mark system or a long time ago then a uh, very able librarian started making a new concordance. Uh, it turned out that the old chef marks, the only ones to be found in a fairly complete inventory from the early 19th century, which I was allowed to scan with ministerial permission, uh, turned out to be class marks, not shelf marks. So in other words, when you make a concordance, you may have five, six, twelve different manuscripts according to their present numbers that all correspond to the old chef marks. And I remember one case which gave me a great uh, satisfaction after I went through it. I went to the library and I had the permission to ask for as many manuscripts as I wanted, which is exceptional. And uh, I had from the concordance for a particular item. I had a class mark with a, for a manuscript I knew. And I looked up the concordance, and the concordance gave, I think, 12 new numbers corresponding to that shelf mark. So I asked for all 12 manuscripts. They bought me 12 manuscripts. I am uh, instinctively uh, very diffident and cautious. So I kept a list of the manuscripts that I had ordered, and they came with 12 manuscripts. And then I checked off the ones I had seen in vain, and when I went through the whole thing, there were three manuscripts that I had not seen. They had brought the wrong numbers. So I ordered, I ordered uh, again three more manuscripts, uh, which I had not seen. They came. Three manuscripts came. I checked off the numbers, uh, two of them. The manuscript was still not there. There was one manuscript left which, for which they had brought me at two attempts a wrong number. I insisted for the third time I asked for that manuscript. The manuscript came, and this was the one I wanted to see. <laughs> now, this is probably extreme and not a typical case, but it tells you what we are up against. Another library... I, I mean, I wouldn't publish this letter, so this lecture, and so I tr suppose uh, nobody will be offended uh, if I mention example. There is a very famous library in Switzerland, among all places, 
which as far as shelf marks are concerned, leaves the user in very bad condition because they have no only they have excellent catalogs for certain groups of manuscripts, but for other groups are buried in um, lists that go back centuries ago, and sometimes they contain no shelf marks, sometimes they can contain antiquated shelf marks. There is no easy way to find out what the present shelf well, the librarians are very helpful, and they spend a lot of time on you to help you. And one time I was allowed to go through a whole class of manuscripts that contain stuff that I was interested in. In doing this, I rediscovered about a dozen uh, manuscripts which I knew only without or with antiquated numbers. And you cannot cite a manuscript without a valid shelf mark. It's like, uh, like uh, uh, citing a person without an address or even without a proper name. Each library has its own shelf mark system and the manuscripts should be cited accordingly. One of the tricks if you want to cite more than one manuscript in a given library is that you must know the style of their shelf mark. When I read, uh, when I read uh, in, uh, indexes of manuscripts, so I have to go through uh, a paper that cites a lot of manuscripts. I have a special way of looking at it. In some cases, I can tell that the author has not understood the shelf mark system of a certain library because he fails to omit some, not that the numbers are wrong, but that he fails to, to indicate certain essential elements. Now, very, uh, very um, um, no. Now, that the fact shelf marks are different in each case was brought home to me when uh, I had a very a careful editor of a book I was publishing with Stanford University Press. This very conscientious editor, as conscientious uh, press editors do, uh, sent me a long list of queries and suggested changes. One of them was, but on page so and so, you quote a Vatican manuscript according to this number. Uh, I suppose Vaticanus Latinus and the number. And on page so and so, you quote a, a manuscript in Parma and you say Palatinus 464. Shouldn't you use a uniform style for <laughs> citing manuscripts? And I had to write back, you're right, it would be ideal for the scholar if all libraries use the same, uh, same uh, shelf mark system that is the ser one serial number covering all its collections, it would be ideal. But since this is not the case, we have no choice but to quote the manuscripts in the style which is adopted by the library where they are kept. So we have to, uh, we are the slaves of the, uh, uh, of the shelf mark system adopted by the library, usually for good reasons. Scholars who use only one manuscript in a given library or work only from microfilms or from printed references are likely to give incomplete or wrong shelf marks. I try to understand the shelf mark system of each library and have it explained to me by the librarian, either in person or in writing. I find a reference, I ask them, well, how do you explain this? What's the proper way of citing this manuscript? Usually, 
I get a helpful answer. When I see a manuscript cited, I often recognize that the shelf mark reference is wrong because it does not correspond to the system of the respective library. Serial numbers and printed catalogs are often mistaken for original shelf marks. I know this for Dublin, Berlin, Venice, and also the Ambrosiana, where the Greek manuscripts are cited not with their shelf marks, but with the serial number of the printed catalog. Well, the initiated will figure it out, but it is literally wrong. If you go to the spot and ask for the manuscript, please show me this manuscript. If you don't have the right shelf mark, they don't find the book. It's as simple as that. The Berlin manuscript of Mommsen is a famous case. Berlin ha has a very fine collection, uh, mostly uh, preserved in the eastern uh, part of the uh, city and library, Hamilton collection. was bought wholesale in England in the 1880s. Very rich collection in our field. Now, there is a manuscript of containing inscriptions uh, which I had to cite recently, um, very interesting manuscript, and the great Theodore Mommsen published an article on it back in the 1890s. Mommsen, the title of his article, used a wrong shelf mark. The right shelf mark is verified in the catalogs. Now, if I find in the literature reference to this manuscript, and the number given is not the right one, but the number used by Mommsen, I infer with almost mathematical certainty that the author knows the manuscript through Mommsen and has never tried to ascertain its real identity. That's what a shelf mark means. It's a loss of identity. Identity crisis. <laughs> Another case, a very distinguished scholar whose name I prefer not. <laughs> asked me once, I went to Florence, he was interested in a particular manuscript in the Biblioteca Nazionale, and he gave me a shelf mark which had a Malia Becchianos and a serial number. I said, this cannot be right, because the Fondo Malia Becchiano has 40 classes, and there has to be first a Roman number indicating the class. I was, I was in a hurry, I was unwilling to check the catalog in 40 different places, so I turned to the uh, assistant director of the library who was uh, um, supervising the reading room and declared a problem. And she was a very clever person, very experienced person. She said immediately, this is a manuscript that comes from San Marco. I look up one of our old inventories. And I look, um, and I tell you what it is. Well, I think the number given was the number which the manuscript had had in San Marco in the 18th century. Its present shelf mark was of the type, Conventi Suppressi, capital I, Roman 6, number 40. Uh, nothing similar to the number given to me. And it was the right manuscript. I saw it, I reported back to my friend, and I said, you see, the manuscript you gave me was not right. And he replied, he had the guts to reply, this is the way how the manuscript is always cited in the scholarly literature on the subject. And I wrote back, because I'm not afraid. Uh, <laughs> I, I wrote back and said, this proves only 
that nobody has seen the manuscript since 1805 when it, when it was transferred from San Marco to its present location in the Biblioteca Nazionale. You see, this is the kind of thing you have to face. When I find an interesting manuscript cited in the literature, being uh, a naive, uh, well, to some extent naive and trusting person, I sometimes edit the entry in my materials on the authority of the scholar involved. It made me uncomfortable. And when I had occasion to check, I checked. And I hope you won't, uh, I hope you, uh, you will believe me when I assure you that in many instances the shelf mark was wrong and I had the manuscript under its correct shelf mark. So I would have perpetuated a ghost by uh, listing a manuscript under a wrong shelf mark that will mislead any scholar using my information. And I have the illusion that it is being used by some people so that some damage is done. I also like to add, again, I don't use a name, there's a recent book, a list of manuscripts by a very well-known scholar, and um, he had many manuscripts that I had missed. I decided, although it cost me correspondence and weeks of work, I decided not to list a single manuscript from him without having it verified in the library. Now, let's say in some cases his indications were confirmed, because his focus was different from mine. Some manuscripts were not as interesting for me than they were for him. In some cases, since he knew his particular area of specialty, he would be able to identify some anonymous texts that I would leave anonymous, and I gladly profited from it. But in dozens and dozens of cases, he had wrong shelf marks. And it would have been a disaster if I had perpetuated. So I'm nasty enough now to say to write this manuscript, confer so-and-so who cites the manuscript with the wrong shelf mark so-and-so. This will be printed. And I don't think it, can, it, it should be done otherwise. Maybe people find I'm not, what would you say, not obliging or uh, not gracious enough. I now never insert a manuscript from secondary literature or from editions without having them verified by the librarian or in a catalog. Because the librarian and the catalog are sure to give the right number. A scholar who uses the manuscript, I had one problem this afternoon when I was working up the Ambrosiana, a famous Petrarch manuscript of Virgil. And I have the facsimile edition of the inventory, and it lists its old number as 879 inferior. Um, half of the literature gives 849 inferior, and the inventory gives another manuscript which has a different content, not virtual. That's enough. All this sounds extremely petty, but meticulous accuracy apart, which is my ideal, 
The manuscript cited with the wrong or incomplete shelf mark cannot be found when you ask for it on the spot or order a microfilm. And if you give the wrong number and you get the microfilm, which contains something different from what you want, you will not be happy. <laughs> you lose both time and money. So, in other words, uh, the point I'm trying to make is perhaps not as petty as it appears on first sight. It is like having a person without an address. There are cases where a library has no shelf marks, and the manuscripts have no numbers and no list. For example, there was an, um, a library in Italy where I recently found out that the manuscript collection is kept in a particular safe, and there's no list. A colleague um, in a neighboring university town promised to have a list prepared for me. I'm waiting. I hope it comes in time before I go to press. I heard that Parma, the Biblioteca Palatina, an excellent depository, I heard shortly after the war that they had a very interesting collection of uh, letters and autographs. No list. Claim that the list that was there burned during the war. I hope. Well, I talked to the librarian and told him about my project. He was helpful. He put me into his office with one of his assistants sitting next to me, and he brought the folders, and I went over folio by folio and jotted down everything that interested me. And this is in the eater volume one or two. But now the great surprise. Most of the letters were 16th century or later. Suddenly I find a little fascicule, and my first impression is, this looks like 15th century. My second impression is, this looks like a Ficino autograph. Well, I took it down, it was a Ficino autograph, found out afterwards that it was the missing piece of a um, manuscript fragment in Paris. Now, in the 19th century, there was a great scholar and a great thief called Libri, an Italian who worked in France and stole. Most of his manuscripts went to England. Some of them afterwards went back to Italy. Most of the thefts, were, many of the thefts, were committed in France. The great Delisle, who was not only a great scholar, but also a great patriot, saw to it that all manuscripts of French provenance would be restored to Paris, which they were. But in two cases, I caught him at having manuscripts restored to Paris that in fact had been stolen in Italy. This is one case. I pieced the two fragments together and published an article about Inscriptorium years ago. I hope to reprint it. Um, then also, I know a case of a library nearby. I prefer not to identify it. Some people may think I'm unpolite. Un un because I was given all the information I wanted. Library, uh, the collection has no chef marks. 
in lieu of chef marks, they use the authors or titles of the manuscript in parentheses. Say Pius II or Pontio and so on, and then they find it. In, and sometimes I caught them as using the wrong name because the person who had described the manuscript distorted the name of the author. Now, in other words, you have to cite the manuscript with a non-existing name because that is the way how the person describing the manuscript and identified. In other words, this is one ideal case, but I, I cannot resist using the Italian phrase. In this case, the error fatesto. It, it, it serves as authority and as basis for further work, the error. If you corrected the name, the manuscript could not be found until the time when it will finally receive its long-deserved shelf mark. Some small libraries long escape attention. I must say within the last few years, I have come across three libraries, small libraries, all of them in West Germany, of whose existence I didn't have the slightest idea. I have received in one case a list, even a printed one, in the two other cases I'm waiting for it. And I hope I will receive it before long. Just unknown to exist. Uh, then, in addition to regular library depositories, we have manuscripts collections owned by archives, by museums, by learned societies, and sometimes inventories are available but not easily accessible. Uh, and this is interesting. I made a sharp distinction between archives and libraries as far as the character of their collections is concerned. But it is true. Some archival materials are kept in libraries, and some, ma some archives have manuscripts of the book type sometimes entire collections. For example, the State Archives in Florence has several important collections of manuscript books. It should not be overlooked. A lovely case uh, where manuscripts are available but not easily accessible is uh, Leningrad. When I went there, which is now almost 80, 30 years ago, um, and I still haven't published my material, although they have a copy of it, uh, I wrote ahead of time, and I said I want to work there for about a week, and it would be essential for me to see the inventories, because the way I work, I cannot specify, give them a list of ten authors whom I want to locate, and many more, and maybe even some I didn't know to exist. So I, it's essential for me to see the inventories. I get a, a very cryptic letter, which I think is typical, and I said, I cannot give you permission to see the inventories, but please come and we will see to it that you are not disappointed. <laughs> I took my chance. <laughs> I went. I was very kindly received in the library by two charming ladies, uh, one of whom spoke fluent French and the other one Italian, so that communication was not difficult. The Italian one had actually worked ahead of my visit for weeks in order to make excerpts for the manuscripts that she thought would interest me. Saved me a lot of time. And then she said, this is what I prepared 
for the theological manuscripts, I didn't quite understand what, in, what you wanted. I hope you wouldn't mind looking at our inventory. <laughs> I did not mind. The results were exciting. In the case of the Spanish libraries, I prevented such experiences by obtaining through the American Embassy a letter from the uh, um, um, section chief of the Ministry of Education, which uh, introduced me to all individual libraries I planned to visit and said I'm authorized to work there and also authorized to look at any catalogs and inventories that might be available on the spot. So that worked. In, but there is also one in experience in a country normally considered more accessible. Again, I won't be specific, but in a very familiar country noted for its hospitality to scholars, I found one cathedral library where the canon librarian said, oh, we have nothing that can interest you. There are the people from our National Library who always pester me with their inquiries, but you ha we have nothing for you. And I had to insist. Finally, I got to see fairly good type inventory, took notes from it, contained at least one excited man whose existence not Even institutional libraries are not stable. Last World War caused many losses and dislocations, especially in France, Italy, Belgium, Germany, and Poland. And so did the Spanish Civil War and many previous wars and revolutions. There are also thefts. There are also secret sales disguised as thefts. I know one famous case. The same is true of natural catastrophes such as floods, fires, and earthquakes. I'm happy to say that I recently verified, for example, that the interest, not important but interesting collection in Mexico City was not damaged by the earthquake of a year ago. Uh, the, for relocating manuscripts that were in a given place long ago and are no longer there, the history of the libraries and of the territories in which they are located is of vital importance. For example, uh, the Swedish libraries are full of interesting manuscripts that are of Polish, Bohemian, or German origin from the 30 years years war. They are, since they are well kept, I hope nobody will raise the question of restitution. After 300 years, that would be terrible. Uh, the famous libraries long dispersed of the Hungarian King Matthias Corvinus, of the Aragon kings in Naples, of the Visconti and Sforza libraries in Milan, they have been reconstructed. 
and we know through good scholarly works where they are. And that's very, very nice. I mean, uh, it's a kind of nobiliary title for a manuscript to be traceable uh, to one of these libraries. Usually they are written on beautifully written and sometimes illuminated. But uh, for example, uh, thanks to the kindness of a French lady, I was told that the library in Besançon contained the personal library of Cardinal Granville, uh, the great chancellor of Philip II in the Low Countries. I went to Besançon, a very pretty town, a French provincial town. Most people forgot that until the time of Louis XIV, of Queen Mary Tudor, obviously a Catholic, addressed two treatises to Philip II, wrote them in Italian, proves my point in the 16th and early 17th century, Italian was an international snob language, just as French and perhaps now English have become subsequently, and there it is. Um, and, um, as a Columbia doctoral dissertation in English literature, which was based on the editing of these two texts. They are not without historical interest, even interest for political thought, because there's some trace of the use of Machiavelli involved. The name of the man is Rainsporn, of the, of the writer. I'm afraid my time's running out, and I have to cut short on the stories in order to finish my outline. We are faced with other difficulties when it comes to manuscripts owned in the past or now by private collectors or dealers. They receive a lot of publicity, especially when it comes to sales and high biddings, but their scholarly importance is often overstated. The lay public is led to believe that the manuscripts just sold and bought at high prices are the most important ones in the world. It is true, they include many pieces of great scholarly significance, but on the whole, the holdings of private collections do not compare in size or importance with those of the major institutional collections whose content, contrary to public belief, is far from being fully explored. Of course, a privately owned manuscript should receive as much attention as a manuscript found in an institutional collection. But it presents greater difficulties. Manuscripts in private collections are often not easily accessible to a scholar. And even when he is given access, he is often subject to restrictions that do not apply for public or institutional collections. The scholar, even when he can see the manuscript, even when he receives a microfilm of it, is often not allowed to identify the owner in public. I established a section in my work called Utopia, where I will list all manuscripts that I have seen, or of which I know, but of which I'm not authorized to disclose the owner. Moreover, private collections are less stable than public collections. Even when the manuscripts are listed in print, it is very hard to locate them after the collection has been dispersed. The most famous example Phillips, who in his high day owned over 30,000 manuscripts. They are scattered all over the world. Some of them are still kept by Krauss downtown. 
I recently learned fourth time a collection, a small interesting collection of letters. Just I understood there was a newspaper announcement. I learned it by chance. The wholesale sold to University of Texas in Austin. I have to correct my information and make a transfer, which on paper of course is easier than in reality, but it has to be made. So I say fourth time a collection see Austin University of Texas. Manuscripts like works of art are of great intrinsic value, cultural and scholarly, but they also have a market value. And this fact has contributed to their preservation, but also to the difficulties of their scholarly use. Captain Sayes, for example, you can't look at it. Another difficulty derives from the shortcomings of the indexes, catalogues and inventories from which we must take our start. Not all catalogues, even recent ones, are satisfactory. If we start from the indexes, we must try all possible forms of an author's name. First name or last name or nickname, Latin name or vernacular name. And the name may still be hidden under distorted version that is hard to guess. Also, names that are too frequent represent a problem. You have to look up too many places. Very often the catalog of inventory fails to identify an anonymous text. In such cases, the index will be of no use. Miscellaneous manuscripts, that is, manuscripts that contain more than one text and author, which contain several different texts, may be incompletely analyzed in a catalog and thus escape the indexer. But a miscellaneous manuscript has its own physiognomy and interest. The company in which a text is found in a given miscellaneous manuscript is often very significant for the diffusion of a text. And it cannot be discovered from the index alone without referring at least to a full description. To recompose a miscellaneous manuscript from scattered index entries is notoriously difficult and at times impossible, especially when the folio numbers are not given. I have once tried to formulate the principle that the origin of a miscellaneous manuscript, at least when it is written by one hand, may be inferred from the rarest text it contains. That points to the point of origin. Many modern catalogues overstress the physical description of a manuscript, measurements, watermarks, binding, illustrations, and pay insufficient attention to its textual content. My emphasis is the opposite way around. I gladly admit that I'm an amateur as far as codicology is concerned. I leave that to others. I remember a case, however, where a manuscript that was very important to me, and I sent to a friend a copy and said, oh, the famous art historian so-and-so dealt with this manuscript. And I looked it up. He dealt only with his illustration. Didn't mention the author or title of the text which it contained. The final step is to proceed from the descriptions, handwritten or printed, to an actual examination of the manuscript, on microfilm or in the original. This will bring many surprises and also many new problems. We may be able to identify anonymous texts not properly indicated in the catalogs. We may find additional texts not mentioned in the catalogs, which happens also in early printed edition. I found an otherwise unknown letter of Ficino hidden in a miscellaneous incunabulum and not mentioned in any of the learned descriptions of that incunabulum. We may decipher a difficult hand with some effort, discover interesting prefaces or colophons, 
dates, owners, and readers. For a close study and edition of a text, these data are essential. We also shall collate, we also collate different manuscripts containing the same text, take note of their variance, establish their relationship. The number of extant manuscripts is too large for a complete collation. We must try to select the best manuscripts on the basis of age, provenance, and accuracy, not on the basis of the fact that their existence has been known for several centuries. For the results of manuscript research are mainly three. The discovery of new texts, the discovery of significant prefaces, dates, and variants of a known text, and finally, the statistics of the diffusion of a given text in terms of the number and character of all its known manuscripts. Discovery of new texts may help to refute conventional or fashionable views of the subject. When there is a conflict between opinion, however popular or appealing, whether conventional or fashionable, the testimony of the text manuscripts containing them overrules the opinion. On this point, otherwise a Platonist, I'm a staunch supporter of Epicurean epistemology. <laughs> when there is a conflict between an opinion and a text, the text wins. <laughs> this is the power of philological scholarship, greatly underestimated by present-day critics and ideologues. I have found many new texts over the years. Some of them help at least to fill a gap in an otherwise fairly complete picture. The finds that I consider most significant are uh, actually, by their very existence, fill a gap and contradict conventional opinion. I have no time to cite examples. For the identification of anonymous texts, the most important instrument are the catalogues of incipits, not yet available for all types of texts. Thorndike and Kyber for scientific texts is famous. Bertalow, now being published, will cover humanistic texts. The first volume covers humanistic Latin poetry. Sometimes the identification of the scribe or the precise date and place where a manuscript was written helped to identify the author or to refute an authorship traditionally assumed. There was a dissertation dealing with the authenticity of a work traditionally ascribed to Ficino, and several expert manuscript scholars, including Miss Delamere, helped by determining the date and place of the manuscript, were able to refute the conventional attribution. There are also cases where two, uh, the combination of two unexpected elements helps to give results. I remember a case, this was very unimportant text, interestingly, for one particular reason. Uh, an Italian friend discovered an 18th century letter in London which mentioned the biography of Ficino. And I had somehow a lead and I looked in Florence in an uncatalogued fondo and I found the biography, anonymous. But the letter in London clearly disclosed so we have these two pieces together. There is the fine. 
On the whole, the combination of the testimony of different but related manuscripts helps a good deal to establish the authorship and date of certain texts. And of course, such combinations are endless and unpredictable. And it happens that we may fail to take note of a manuscript and then are reminded of it when we hit upon a second similar manuscript and thus have a hard time in assembling our evidence for a conclusion we should like to draw. I hope I have been able to show that the bibliography of Renaissance manuscripts provides a key to many more ambitious undertakings. As all bibliography, that of manuscripts is a modest and thankless but indispensable task. It can be despised only after it has been done, at least by somebody, at least by somebody else. It is enumerative and hence looked down upon by more sophisticated bibliographers interest in the post-proof corrections of an author and in the variants of allegedly uniform editions. The bibliography of manuscripts may be called depth bibliography because it deals with books which are unique and precious in content and in monetary value, and which are harder to describe than most printed books, usually having no title pages or titles, no pagination, and often even no foliation, which require paleography and languages such as Latin. To deal with manuscripts and to read them, we need a higher degree of literacy than the one whose absence is now widely regretted. We hope this work will be continued by specialized librarians and by properly trained historical and literary scholars and will be successfully utilized for the discovery of new texts and of new variants and for a study of the diffusion of and influence of individual texts and of various literary genres and subjects. This work requires of those who pursue it not only a good deal of knowledge and skill which may be acquired through study and experience but also some other virtues which seem to be in short supply and not to be held in great esteem. Patience, diligence, and modesty. <laughs> the scholar of his metal is not an artist, nor a journalist or politician, but a craftsman aiming at precision, a quality which has great intellectual importance and also an aesthetic and a moral dimension. Thank you. <laughs>